Well, we're back in Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. I'm very excited to be there. It's fun to preach through a gospel because the context doesn't change very much that, that the sermons can roll into one another. Characters are the same. And uh, it's, it's very exciting in terms of how it builds. <clears throat> Matthew's gospel, if I can remind you, he, he wrote this gospel uh, really so that we might recognize Jesus Christ as the Messiah of God, the one sent by God, that we would find our absolute trust in him. That's why he wrote the gospel. If you think about it, the first four chapters were all about the uniqueness of his person, right? He had this his lineage to Abraham, he's a virgin birth, a star-led wise men to see him. You know, his baptisms, God spoke, he faces Satan in temptation and overcomes him. I, I mean, Matthew's very clear. This is a unique person. It, he's really the fulfillment of all that God had said. Matthew said that six times in those first four chapters. But then in chapters 5, 6, and 7, then you have this unique teaching of Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount, we studied that. I mean, it was remarkable. He's saying crazy things like, you've heard it said, but I say to you, I'm the light of the world, I'm the salt of the earth. He says, many are going to say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this in your name and this in your name? He says, I never knew you. Here he is putting himself as the gatekeeper of heaven himself. He's giving a new law. <clears throat> He's giving a new teaching for this new kingdom. Well, now we get to eight and nine. And we're going to see Matthew now kind of unveil Jesus with a unique power. These miracles we're going to see over disease and darkness and death. And what we're going to find is Matthew, over these chapters, in three sections of three miracles apiece, is going to show us that he's the Messiah. Don't miss it. <clears throat> he's the Messiah, sent to save, power to save. And he's worthy of all of your trust. He's worthy of all of your love. He's worthy of all of your obedience. He's absolutely worthy. Because he's absolutely unique, glorious, powerful, among all things. I, I wanna, we're going to cover 17 verses, which is a lot. We won't do this many verses this frequently. But um, we're going to look at 17 verses, and we're going to look at three aspects of his ministry that I want you thinking about. One is that this power is brought to bear on the weak and the broken first. He has a care for the broken. He has a care for the disenfranchised, that there is a profound care for those people that we look through in life. We don't see them. They're not part of our North Raleigh existence, and yet they're the centerpiece of his ministry. And then we're going to see this unique power that he's going he's to reveal himself in a way that there is no other healer that could do the things that he did. There has never been one. There never will be one. Even the apostles... And, and then there's going to be this um, unique response to Jesus. And we're going to see it in these miracle stories. So turn with me, if you will, to uh, Matthew chapter 8. We'll read 1 to 17. Matthew 8, 1 to 17. Here's how Matthew records it. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. By the way, those were the same crowds that were with him in chapter 4. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy was cleansed. 
And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does that. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly, I say to you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from the east and the west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus says, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve them. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons. He cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. And folks, I am often guilty of reading through a text like this and just cruising right over it and and missing so much of what Jesus intends for us to draw from this teaching. But, But let's just boil it down to those three points I mentioned. Number one, that Jesus, Matthew's writing, Jesus is the Messiah. Look at the objects of his ministry. The objects of his ministry are the broken, the weak. Now you can see that in these three miracle stories, it's a leper, it's a Gentile, and it's a woman. Now, you know, a leper, uh, you know, we don't see leprosy. And while there are various skin diseases that may be covered under that in a more broad sense, leprosy was, was a, a both a debilitating, um, but it was, it was really a disgusting disease. Uh, often often um, nodules would appear on the body of a leper, ulcerating with giving off a foul discharge, affecting the vocal cords. It, it, was, a, it was a disease uh, that had a real stigma. Probably the greatest stigma was associated with a person with leprosy. Even in the law, they were considered unclean. And so they had to announce their uncleanness. You couldn't see it from a distance, perhaps, but they would have to shout, unclean, unclean. And they would have to keep six feet from any person that wasn't unclean as they were. Uh, if, if the wind was going by them, they had to have more room. It, it was a terrible disease, not just in, in, the, in the appearance of it, but what it did to the soul of a person. And that's why it was often considered equivalent to sin. Th- this idea that God's judgment was on the person with leprosy. In fact, some Pharisees were known to throw rocks at them, to chase them away, get them away, we don't want your kind here kind of thing. And it, it, was, it was a terrible disease to have because it left you isolated. It left you alone. Nobody could touch you. I mean, you think about that. Now, Mark's gospel says that he was full of leprosy, so this developed leprosy. How many years was it that no one held his hand? Nobody touched his shoulder. Nobody made any contact with him. Five, 10, 15, 25 years? I mean, can you not imagine 
I mean, just the sense of self-disgust that nobody can touch me, nobody finds value in me. He could have been the greatest painter. He could have been the greatest singer. But nobody would ever know because nobody would ever get near him until Jesus. Jesus goes to him. Well, he comes to Jesus, but Jesus moves towards him and touches him. And the Greek word isn't just touch, but grabs his hand, grabs him. Can you believe it? What would, what would that have felt like? And moves towards him. But not just the leper, the centurion. The centurion, that word just means he's a Roman officer. He, he was a commander over 100 foot soldiers. The centurion was the backbone of the Roman military. Uh, they kept law and order. They collected tariffs. They, they advanced or they protected the interests of Rome. But they were a hated group. They were an occupying force. And a, a centurion was always a Gentile. And a Gentile, among the more pious Jews, were often seen as those who would add fuel to the fire of hell. So they were seen with absolute disgrace, disregard, disdain. I mean, to even walk in the home of a Gentile would render a Jew unclean. And yet Jesus offers to go to his home and heal the man. I'll come to your home. I mean, he's blasting through social convention. He's blasting through religious convention. I, I mean, it would make us pious people quite uncomfortable with his behavior. He's breaking all the rules. He's breaking all our evangelical rules is what he's doing. It's really frightening to be with a person like this. But not only that, this woman, <clears throat> Peter's mother-in-law, has a fever, don't know what it is exactly, perhaps it's malaria, but no hesitation, goes right up to her, touches her, and heals her. And then you see in 16, it's like the, just the floodgates open, and everybody starts moving towards him, everybody in the town. All those that were unclean, all those that were diseased, all those that were demon-possessed, they all came to him. And you know what? He didn't turn any of them away. He ministered to them. It's profound when you think about it. When you think about it, Jesus broke our own rules. I mean, he hung around with people that we look through. He, he, he ministered to people that we would find very uncomfortable with or to be seen with. He ministered and cared for them. It, it's really a, a glorious picture of the kindness, really the kindness of him, the compassion of Jesus Christ. His ministry was marked by that. When he said to the crowds, he says, Come to me, all you who are heavy laden. I think he really meant that. I mean, those burdened with sin and shame and guilt and, and self-disgust come to me. He's really appealing. Uh, yeah, he is not appealing to the up and coming. He, he's, he's not appealing to those. They got a lot of potential. He's really appealing to the dregs, the lower rungs of society. It's really a message to the world. You know, it, it, I mean, for the non-Christian here, I think you would agree with me that this is a beautiful picture of a Savior that has come to save. Not selective, but moving among those that perhaps we would feel uncomfortable with. Maybe we don't even feel like we're like them. But it's a picture that shows a kindness that Jesus doesn't move to those based upon their value or their potential or their quality. But he moves to them even based upon their need. He said himself that I don't come for the healthy, but I come for the sick. I mean, if you are here and you're a non-Christian, 
would you at least with me from this story banish the idea that God approaches those who clean themselves up, or at least banish the idea that God only moves to those who are religious or kind or have right theology or have got their lives back under track and they're moving forward again. Please, would you agree with me that's not the case? Because if you're here and you're, and you're thinking, well, your sins are too great or you're too far from God or his arm cannot reach you at the place you're at, this would, this would disagree with you. If the one common thread through these three, not that they're all at the bottom of society, which they were, but they knew they were in trouble. They knew they had a need. They knew they had problems. They knew that they needed to be saved. That's really a critical mark in, in the non-Christian moving to the Christian. This is how a Christian becomes, this is how a non-Christian moves from darkness to light and from being far away to being near is to recognize the help that you need. Not from us, not from anybody in here. The help you need from God and given Christ. I mean, you look at your life and you realize, I've tried and tried and tried, I've done this, I keep getting, I'm, I'm digging all day long, but the hole's getting deeper. When you're at that place, you need a Savior. And, and this is what Jesus has come to do, to be kind and compassionate. One of my favorite verses from uh, C.S. Lewis is speaking just about this issue, coming to know your needs. See, the proud don't turn to God. Those who feel quite confident in themselves, they don't move to God. Here's what he said. He said, prostitutes are in no danger of finding their present life so satisfactory that they cannot turn to God. They know what they got, and they don't like it, and they're turning to God. He says it's the proud, the avaricious, the self-righteous. They are in that danger of not turning to God. Why? Because they think they have it. So for the non-Christian, Jesus comes ready to save, to save. But there's a word here for us, too, as Christians. Those of us who are Christians, do you realize that you were the leper with God? Do you realize you were the paralytic, that you couldn't get up and go on your way? Do you realize that you were the, the woman with fever, unable to serve God? I mean, do you get that? I mean, we have moved in the faith, and I think sometimes we forget our heritage, and our heritage is the leper, that we were separated from God due to our sins. We're paralyzed. We couldn't move towards God on our own. I mean, for me, this is really fundamental for the Christian grasp. Here's why. You're, the fuel of your humility is based upon you understanding that you were in this group. You were. As Paul says, we're not now. But we were, and we don't want to forget that. The fuel for your joy is in this. Your gratitude. Do you get that you were healed? That Jesus Christ approached you and saved you? If you're thinking you've done it, it's going to mitigate the sense of joy and humility that we have. There should be no arrogance. There should never be any proudful boasting in the faith among any of us. None of us have a different heritage than these three. We all do. We've all been delivered. Perhaps you're not as, you don't feel as dark as the next person. To God, darkness is darkness. That you had to be saved. So let this be fuel for you. So if you find yourself suffering with pride, and you've really advanced in the faith, or if you really feel that you have the move towards kind of condescending attitude towards others, read the passage. That's you. That's me. Let, let it well up in you gratitude to Christ for saving you. But there's a message for, the, for our church, too, I think. 
I mean, as a church as a whole, do our ministries look like his in the Western culture or in this church itself? I mean, his ministry is totally counterintuitive. He's not going to the up-and-coming. He's not going to the movers and shakers. He's not going to the best and the brightest. He's going to the part of society that we in our North Raleigh context rarely see. Or if we see it, we see through it. Or we see around it. I mean, I think about we, we are so in, in, in a performance and beauty-based culture, these folks don't fit in. And I, I just wonder, I, I look at our church here, and do we have room for them? We wanted to initiate this ministry, Jobs for Life, which some are interested, we need to raise up a leader for that. But it's taking people who have been unemployed for a season of time, and trying to reintegrate them back into society. It's practical help. It's good help with people that you may not have within your first circle of friends. It's a good ministry. We need to begin that. We're beginning a ministry down here at the school. We'd like you to consider participating in that, serving people. We don't normally travel in these circles. When I look at our church, I feel very thankful to God that he's given us much grace here. I mean, many of you have come to faith. I know I've seen in these 15 years, many of you have grown in the faith. And God's grace has been sufficient for you in bringing you from glory to glory. I'm very thankful to God for that. I'm thankful to God that we're serious about the Bible here. We're serious about worshiping God. We're serious about confessing sin and moving forward. I love that about our church. I love the fact that our church, that, that many of you have even grown sophisticated in your understanding of God and the things of God. And all of that's great and beautiful, and I really give him praise for that. But we need this too. If, this, if, if, these, if these broken, disenfranchised, forgotten people are not somehow able to be uh, engaged by us, loved, sought, ministered to, I think we're missing something. I really do. I don't mean that every person's going to immediately feel comfortable when they walk in the door here. They don't have a church background or they got tattoos all over. They may not feel super comfortable here. They may feel, but our joy and our humility and our love would just bring them in. Why? Because we've been saved from this. So that's a fundamental part of our church that we need to pray for and seek. It's easy for you to understand. It's hard for us to do. It's very hard to do because you have relationships. But, but I would encourage you to consider this, meditate on it, think about it. I remember seeing this, uh, this YouTube on a church. And this church had this, forget, didn't even see the message, but it had a string of people coming up to the front platform, and they'd hold a sign up. Everyone had their own sign, and you couldn't see what was on the sign until they turned it. And so they'd come up, and there was a guy that turned his sign. He says, I'm an adulterer. And then the next one came up, I was a porn addict. The next one, I was a liar. Next one, I was a gossip. Next one, I was a cheat. And, and all these people, this is where I've come from. I'm not there now. Thank God. Praise God for his mercy. But that's where I was. So we want to we see. Jesus' ministry was exercising compassion and care to the disenfranchised, the lepers, the women. The women, of course, took two testimonies of a woman to equal one testimony of a man in a court of law. 
yet he ministers to them and the sick and the disenfranchised. So that's the first aspect of his ministry. We want to see that here. We want to pray for that. Okay, the, the second thing I want you to see in this passage is the power that Jesus brings to his ministry. I mean, it's a remarkable power. No power is like this. And I want you to notice the instantaneousness of all these healings. The leper comes up to him. There was no cure. There was no hope for a leper. A, a leper had no hope. And so he comes up to Jesus, and uh, he casts himself on the mercy of Christ. And it says, Jesus stretched out his hand. I can see like a king stretching out a scepter to come into his presence. And Jesus stretches out his hand, grabs him, and heals him instantly. Instantly. Full of leprosy. And he's instantaneously healed. Can you just... I know it's hard for us because we don't walk down the street and there's lepers coming down by us. You don't see it as you may have in this context. But try to imagine yourself having leprosy for 18 and a half years. Your body is disintegrating around you. It's, it's disgusting. It's foul. People don't want to be near you. And you go from that to pinkish or darkish skin healthy immediately. Can you imagine Whoa. But not just the leper, but the centurion. The centurion comes. He doesn't have anything to do. He's, he's got nothing for this guy. He's paralyzed. Luke's gospel said he was at the point of death. So he's at the very end of his sickness, whatever it is, and, and Jesus, Jesus just gives a word. It's the first recorded miracle with just a word. Jesus says, go. He's healed. Just a word out of the one who formed the worlds, and he's healed. At that moment, it said, there wasn't a delay. Or the woman, Peter's mother-in-law, touches her, boom, she's up serving. You know, when you have a fever and a fever breaks, you know, you still have that soreness in you. It's still working out. There's that recuperative time that you and I go through. You're immediately feeling better when the fever breaks, but you know how that lasts. It kind of lingers. Not so here. The, 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 the giver of life touches her, infuses her body with power, and boom, she's up. I'm ready to roll. I'm ready to work. I'm ready to go out. I'm ready to serve. Instantly healed. There's a great power. So why all the power plays here? Why, why, why is this a part of his ministry? Well, you know, I, I want to remind you, as I have in the past, that miracles are acts done of God in space and time. So they have a natural shelf life to them. They don't go on forever. Uh, miracles take place in a temporal world. All these people that were healed died. And every other miracle ends in death. It's just the way it is. Miracles, this, this acting of, this moving of Jesus with power isn't simply to better their lives now. It, it did do that, and I praise God for that, but that's not the purpose of it. Miracles in Scripture have a fundamental purpose of displaying Jesus is the unique Savior of the world. That only he can save, as evidenced by the power, by the divine and instantaneous power, boom, to heal. That's Jesus. I mean, th that's the intention of a miracle. And miracles don't lead you to faith. You realize that. Miracles lead you to Jesus, who you find worthy of faith. That's the purpose of a miracle. In fact, in Matthew chapter 11, we'll get to this in a number of weeks, he says, now when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, that's John the Baptist, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Now, I kind of feel sorry for John. You know, John, in a way, is a, he's the greatest man, according to Jesus. No one's greater than John on this earth, he said. I, I believe Jesus when he said that. So John's a great guy. He's a forerunner of Jesus. He's announcing, hey, the king's coming. Let's get ready. Repent. Believe. He's coming. 
And boom, he ends up in jail. Now, he's, the king's coming and I end up in the slammer and suffering right now. How's that working? I mean, you can imagine, because John didn't have all the revelation here that we have in the sense of we're looking back, John's in the midst of it. Sometimes you don't understand history when you're walking through it. And he's in jail thinking, what gives if Jesus the king is coming to establish a kingdom? Why am I in the slammer? So he sends his disciples to Jesus and says, what's the story? Are you the one or not? He's looking at his, and this is, we do this all the time. He's looking at his circumstances and he's beginning to question the truth. Don't we do that? We do. We get in a pickle and we begin to wonder about God. So here's what Jesus said. Go and tell him what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. And the dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to him. Jesus is saying, look at the, look at the trail that I'm leaving, that he's the Messiah. So that's the power is not to just bring betterment to life, but to reflect that Jesus is the one that can save as evidenced. Now, if you notice in verse 17, at the end of all these miracles, he quotes Isaiah 50, uh, 53, 4. He says he took our infirmities and bore our illnesses. Now, I want to deal with this for a minute because this particular text of Scripture causes some conflict within Christendom. And the conflict is this that some within the Pentecostal or charismatic community will see the miracles and will see Matthew say this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah 53.4 is that, is that verse on the substitution where our sins and our shame are thrown to Jesus and, and by him bearing that and suffering, we're then forgiven and drawn to God. That's true. We, we love that. I preached on it a couple months ago. And so what some want to do with this passage of Scripture is they want to say the healings are associated with Jesus' work on the cross. And so since Jesus died on the cross and rose again, now we have healing given to us by faith. It's part of the atonement. All healings. If you believe, you will be healed. Perhaps you've seen some of these preachers on television. And a lot of people buy into it. Why? Well, it sounds great, number one. If I just believe, I don't have to suffer. I don't have to go through any pain. I can be honest with you that when uh, Carol and I were new, newly married and she was pregnant, we, she particularly came across this teaching and it resonated with her that she's, you know, probably three, four months pregnant and she read this teaching about how pain of childbirth is associated with the fall, Genesis 3. Jesus died for the sins associated with the fall and he rose again and so now we're saved and we're forgiven and we can be healed and so She's thinking, well, and she has great faith. She says, well, if I have faith, I won't have the pain associated with childbirth because it was associated with the fall, and the fall has been overcome by Christ. It seemed to make sense, right? So by her own admission, she wasn't paying as much during the Lamaze classes. And, uh, well, I didn't ever really buy into it fully, uh, just for the record. Now, it, it didn't concern me as much. was probably part of the reason. But it was with the fall, and Jesus overcame the fall, and so everything seemed good. It was, I think, about that nine-centimeter point when um, it was what came out of her mouth that was associated with the fall. <laughs> and it was directed towards yours truly here. And, and I remember saying to her, I said, On what boat did you learn that language? 
it, it, just think, to think that uh, it was, I think, when she had me under the neck that I knew I was in most. To think, it's too simplistic to think. And it fails to deal with the legitimate role of suffering in the life of the believer in a fallen creation to think that because, because Matthew undergirds this healing ministry with Isaiah 53, that now healing is for everybody just by faith. It's to fail to appreciate the nature of suffering and the nature of the cross. But why does he do it? Why does he use, Matt? Why does he use Isaiah 53 here? Well, specifically, it does speak to our sins being cast upon Jesus, and he bears them. But Isaiah 53 speaks to the whole of Jesus' ministry, the whole of his ministry. In other words, the healings in Matthew are in anticipation of the permanent healing that's going to come through his ministry. So, so they're kind of an anticipation. They're predicated on his ministry. But, but Jesus, by his death and resurrection, is going to bring a permanent healing of which these are a part or a vision or a foretaste. That's why he references Isaiah 53. In fact, one scholar said it this way. The healing anticipates the passion in that they begin to roll back the effects of the sins for which Jesus came to die. Or another said, thus the healings during Jesus' ministry can be understood not only as a foretaste of the kingdom, but also as the fruit of his death, just proleptically, just on this side of them. So I want you to see that the world is groaning for redemption, and Jesus was beginning to satisfy the groaning of it. Now this is a word, this is a word clearly for the non-Christian, for sure the non-Christian, that you don't see a more powerful ministry. I mean, we've just opened the can here. Next week and the following weeks, he's going to calm seas, he's going to raise the dead, he's going to, he's going to, um, uh, cause demons to tremble before him. Darkness, all of darkness is going to shake before him. So the miracles are going to start coming out. And, and, and for the non-Christian here, you're going to face situations in this life that, that are going to be outside of your ability to, to move the levers and to turn the dials. You won't have what you need to face these situations. You will need one. You'll turn. You're going to look to the medical community. You're going to look to the counsel of others. You're going to look to experience. You're going to look to whoever. Jesus is holding himself out. I'm the one. He's the only one that can do. Who else can do what he has done? Who else could ever possibly do it except for Christ? But there's a word here, too, for you, the individual Christian. Have you forgotten about the power of Jesus Christ? I mean, are you facing besetting sin in your life? If you're a Christian here and you're struggling with the same repeated sin as I think all of us do at some level, have you reconsidered the power that Jesus has to heal and save and deliver? I mean, those of you who are in such marital turmoil and you really wonder, there is no way out. I've just been consigned to a position of pain for the balance of my life. Turn to the one. Appeal to Christ. The financial hardship, whatever your plate is, lift your plate before the power that you see in this ministry. Now, I want to be clear here. I believe uh, that healings and miracles occur today. We've prayed for them and we've seen them. But I don't think that the power of Jesus is always manifested by escaping problems. 
I think many times, I would even say most times, the power of Christ is revealed by the endurance of people. They don't escape out of them, they endure through them. In fact, I must say, while I pray to be delivered, uh, I often find the testimony of a saint who endures faithfully through trouble to be more persuasive to the power of the gospel than the act of God that will escape or deliver a person out. And Jesus said this in John 17, 5. He says, I pray not that they would be withdrawn or taken from the world, but to be protected in it. There's this idea of we think removal is best, but his spirit refreshes us in it, and we endure. His power is for you to persevere, and it's there. We appeal to him. I would encourage you, those of you struggling, appeal to him. Look at these. Remind yourself of his power. And then the third issue, and the last issue of his ministry, I think, is the response to it. How did they respond to this ministry? I think there are a lot of responses to Jesus. We see we live in a very spiritualized culture now. Um, Most people will agree there's a God. And most people feel quite comfortable that they can speak for God as to this is God and he's loving and he's non-judgmental and all these different things. People wax eloquent about God all the time without any reference to any other literature, even another holy book. It's just, this is what I think about God. And, and we've, I don't know what it is, if we bought into self-esteem or we're just so in love with ourselves that we just think everything out of our mouth must be true, but people wax eloquent. Well, the reality of it is that being spiritual or believing in God or even believing that God, because even non-Christians, I'm going to pray that, that your God heals you. Or I'm going to pray that God heals you, some generic kind of response. That, that's not a biblical faith. It may be spiritual, it may sound spiritual, it may have terms that you find in the Bible, but that's not a biblical faith. We call it a miracle faith. They believe that God can do miracles, but that's not believing in God, how he's revealed himself. Another type of faith is a religious faith. A religious faith is the people that, and there are many of us perhaps here, that have a religious faith. In other words, you think that by your theology, or the way you think about God or understand God, that because it's right, you're going to be accepted by God. Or perhaps, instead of feeling as God accepts you based upon your belief, or your behavior. I go to church, I'm engaging in a ministry. Now, I can always tell when there's a religious faith, because when their prayers aren't answered, there's a sense of injustice. Like, hey, God, I, I believe the right thing about you. Or, hey, God, look at all I'm doing for you. When you hear that come out of your mouth, you know you don't really understand the first part of this thing which is that you were a leper and you were a paralytic and you were down with fever. The spiritualized faith and the religious faith, they're not a biblical faith. We see in these folks, particularly in the uh, first two miracles, we see a biblical faith. Look at it with me. Here the leper comes to Jesus, and he comes to Jesus. Now remember this with, with me, if you would. A leper would never go up to anybody. A, a leper would always peel back from people. But this leper was in such need that his need drove his assertiveness. I'm sure of it. His need was so profound, I've got no options, I'm going right to Jesus Christ. And he goes right to him. There's this desperate need. It's more than you know you need Jesus. I don't know that anybody in here wouldn't stand up if I said, who here thinks they need Jesus? Everybody would stand up. Now, if I ask the same question, who here 
feels they need Jesus. Well, m- many of us maybe wouldn't get up. We don't feel the need. We don't have that, that experience, experiential kind of sense of, I really need him. I, I can't do this without him. That usually only comes where we're hanging at the end of the rope. And that's where the leper was. But that's the beginning of faith, I would argue. Not just the leper, the, the centurion as well. I mean, the centurion in Luke's gospel, it says that he sent Jewish leaders to Jesus. He was so unworthy, he felt so inadequate that he couldn't even go. He sends elders to him. He doesn't appeal to Jesus based upon what he had done. And according to Luke's gospel, he had done some very nice things for the Jewish community. He didn't go there and say, hey, look what I've done for you. He just says, help. Can you help my servant? A desperate need is really the birthplace of biblical faith. Do you know that you need Jesus? If you're a Christian here, do you remember that day when you knew you needed him? See, many of us have been raised with this idea of choose today or decide today. Now, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was this great preacher, and uh, he wrote a book called Preaching and Preachers uh, in the mid-20th century in London, and he was right in the middle of the revivals that were taking place on both sides of the Atlantic. And many of the revivals were moving with decide today for Jesus. And, and we see coming to faith as a decision that we make that rests with us. We get the facts, we get the data, we weigh them, we say, yeah, it's a good decision, I want to decide. But here's what he said about that. He said, the term decide has always seemed to me to be quite wrong. A sinner doesn't decide for Christ. The sinner flies to Christ in utter helplessness and despair, saying, foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. He says no man truly comes to Christ until he flies to him as his only refuge and hope, his only way of escape from the accusations of conscience and the condemnation of God's holy law. Nothing else is satisfactory. If a man says that having thought about the matter and having considered all sides, he has on the whole decided for Christ, and if, he is, and if he has done so without any emotion or feeling, I cannot regard him as a man who has been regenerated. The convicted sinner no more decides for Christ than the poor drowning man decides to take hold of the rope that is thrown to him and suddenly provides him with the only means of escape. The term is entirely inappropriate. I couldn't agree more. There's this desperateness, I think, that we need to recover, both among the believing community, but also for the unsaved part of the community, or the unsaved to move into the community. The biblical faith begins with a desperateness, a helplessness, a, a flying to Christ. But then secondly, this biblical faith, this right response, if you will, to this Jesus of the miracles, is going to be um, an act of trust in his person, that you really are trusting in his person. The leper came and fell before him and said, if you're willing, you can make me clean. I want to make sure you understand the nuance here. The leper had full faith Jesus could heal him. There was no doubt in his mind. What he doubted was, would Jesus choose to exercise his power towards him? It isn't faithlessness. Remember, Charismatic told me once, he says, yeah, if you say, if, if you will, you're showing your lack of faith. No, you're not. You're showing your lack of arrogance, that you don't know God's perfect will. We say, if you will, because we understand that God may have a will that's contrary to ours that still leads to good. 
but it may not involve what we exactly want at that point in time. It's frankly avoiding the sin of presumption. So you see the leper exercise this faith. He says, I know you can heal me. I know you can. The, the, the uh, centurion, the same. Just say the word. Just say the word. It's funny, John Calvin brings up, the Jews wanted a sign. This guy just wants a word. Just tell me you'll do it. I believe you. I mean, it's total faith. There's an active trust. And, and for the, for the non-Christian to become a Christian, that active trust has to be in Christ saving me from my sins. But for the Christian, you're still actively trusting in his sustaining grace and power in your life. You, you, you can be in the faith 82 years, and you still need, when you get up in the morning, Jesus, I need you. I need you to give me grace today, to walk in a manner worthy of your great gospel. I need you to help me see your, in, your infinite value so that I would choose you above all other choices. There is this ongoing need. I got up, I laying in bed this morning. God, before my feet hit the floor, I need your grace. I, I got, I'm too prone to wander, way too prone. And so there's an active trust. And, and, then, and then thirdly, there's a belief in the authority of Christ's word. Do look at what the centurion said here. It's kind of interesting. He tries to draw this analogy between him and Jesus. That's gutsy when you do that, but it's, it's a, it worked great for him on this one. He says this. He says simply, he says, I too am a man under authority. So he's likening himself with Jesus Christ. He says, I too am a man under authority. With soldiers who say go, and they go. If I say come, they come. If I say to the servant, do this, they do that. And what he's doing is something really incredible. And I want you to see it. He understands that as a centurion over these hundred men, his authority is the authority of Caesar himself. He has authority from the senior officer. The senior officer has authority from the tribunal. The tribunal has the authority from Caesar. So when a centurion in the Roman army gave a command, it was Caesar speaking to the people. That's why there was absolute obedience or death. Caesar was commanding through the centurion. And this man saw the relationship between Jesus and the Father. And he saw that Jesus has the authority of the Father. And that's why he's doing these things. Just say the word. Because when Jesus speaks, God speaks. To deny Jesus is to deny God. To honor Jesus is to honor God. It's that intimate. It's that close of a connection. And he understood it. For us, these words that we have, they're God's words to you. When Jesus speaks about loving neighbors or sacrificing yourself or whatever he says, it's God speaking to us. It's, it's not, hey, that's decent advice. It's not, hey, here's some steps for you to be a better mother. These, these are God's words through Christ to us, the perfect representation we read in Hebrews chapter 1. So how, what is the biblical faith? How are we to respond to this Jesus? Well, we respond in desperation with active trust and then resting in his word. And what happens is, is then... God is pleased. For the Christian here, when you walk in faith, do you realize God is pleased with you when you choose to obey and walk in faith? It brings the pleasure of God. Jesus comments, he, in fact, rare is Jesus marveling in the scriptures. He does marvel over the ingratitude of those that he healed, but in this case he marvels over the faith of this Gentile because the Gentile understood this relationship that in Christ is the fullness of God's glory for us.
And not only does Jesus marvel, but Jesus states where that man will be on his deathbed. He will be from the east to the west, and he'll be having the banquet with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They will be drawn into the kingdom. Those who have a religious faith, a spiritualized faith, you don't honor Jesus as you honor God, then the sons of disobedience will be on the outside, weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a profound warning. Do not miss the absolute chasm between dining with Abraham and being in darkness. It's a profound separation. It isn't theory. It's reality right now for many, many people. Jesus is a glorious Savior. He's compassionate. He's kind. It's in his nature to move. May we pray it be in our nature as he changes us from glory to glory. Jesus is a powerful healer. He has come to save. He now sits at the right hand of God, interceding for the church, for us, that we might move, that he will give us power. He will strengthen us to persevere. And we are to respond by living in faith. So let me just pray for us and, uh, and ask for his grace to be given to us. Um, that we would come under both the conviction and the comfort of his word. Father, thank you for your grace and mercy. In these words, we are overwhelmed at your kindness to us, that you have delivered us from death to life. Father, would you lead us uh, to have a heart of compassion and mercy to the broken, to the weak, to the frail, to the overlooked? Would you give us that grace? We need that, Father. You've put us in a context of great affluence and comfort and wealth. And we are thankful to you for these things. May they not preclude us from serving those without. Would you also give us grace and power to persevere? There are many people who are struggling in, in trials that are deep and complicated, very difficult. Would you give them grace that they... Deliver them, Father, for your glory or persevere them for your honor. And Lord, I pray that we would be a people who walk by faith. Give us eyes to see the glory of the Son. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.